The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Scripture reading today is from the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the last of the 27 books of the New Testament. So just go to the back of your Bible and work backwards. We are reading uh, chapter 21, starting in verse 9. We're going to read all the way down to chapter 22, verse 5. That can be found on page 1041 of our Congregational Bibles. Again, that's Revelation of Jesus Christ, 21, verse 9, page 1041. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, and a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke of me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. He measured the, land, the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold by clear glass. Foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of the single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does was detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with the twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations, no longer will, be, will there be anything accursed, 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. What a thrill it is to be here to uh, worship the Lord together and uh, now to worship him as we hear from his word. Uh, Before we do that, let's pray because I need help uh, to teach well. And from experience, I know that we all need help to listen well. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this incredible day and this time to be together to celebrate you and who you are to us and for us to celebrate uh, fathers, who they are to us and for us. Uh, Lord, we come with great need for you. Uh, So Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would visit us. Please help me to teach this text faithfully and clearly, Lord, uh, and for your glory. Um, And Lord, we pray for each person who hears it, Lord, that you, uh, this wouldn't just be a speech from a Uh, a flawed man like me, but it would be um, the word of God to hearts and minds um, because you work through your word, Lord. Your word never goes out in vain. So we just trust you, Lord, to do the work of your word in us now as we come before it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question I want to start with this morning is uh, for you and and your heart. And I, I just want to ask, do you feel secure Do you feel secure? The dictionary defines security like this, uh, the state of being free from danger or threat. Do you feel secure in that way? I guess there's a a strong safety aspect. But for me, when I think about being secure, I want a little bit more than that. Do you? Um, Thinking about what I want, I, I, I would like some resources to enjoy things, to feel secure. Um... I want to see some beauty to be secure. I I want to be moved by that. And I want to experience some welcome to be secure. Like, I need some good relationships to to enjoy security. That that would be my version of security. But as I was was pondering this idea this week, I'm sure, right, we, we all want and long for security, don't we? long for security, and we all realize as deeply as we long for that, how hard it is to come by security in this world. I mean, think of the things that make us anxious, that give us concern. We could be worried about danger or threat in our country, policies or economics. We could be concerned about the lack of security when it comes to retirement or to how how well our children are doing. We could be anxious about danger or threat in our health. We could be worried about danger or threat in relationships. And we see over time, don't we, that our own strength to provide security is quite limited and fragile. Because what's the cold reality? I'm not a prophet, but I know something about all of us. We're all going to die. And I heard Denzel Washington say this week, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. 
all the efforts at security in this life will fail, right? That it's not secure. And that's so so in a way, as we ponder this, here we have it, we're longing for security. Think think of all things we do in pursuit of different kinds of security. Think of what we do for relational security to to keep a certain relationship or or financial security. I mean, so many things. And yet it seems like true security isn't really something we can have in this life. So what are we to do with that? You long for security and yet here you can't find it. Where can we find the real thing? Does it even exist? Well, we're almost finished with our study through Revelation. Just, Just two more messages. Can you believe it? And uh, security, I think, is a theme in this book. Think of how this age is described. Remember some of the major characters? There's a dragon that hates us, and there's a beast that tyrannically wants to control us. How do those make you feel? Safe and secure? (laughs) No, there's dangers in this world. And Revelation has shown us in a way God's people are insecure We suffer in this life. We could be persecuted in this life. Revelation 11, Revelation 13, God's people get trampled sometimes in this world. There's a way that there's no security. And yet, you know, just before the end, the Apostle John has another vision. As you heard it read this morning, uh, maybe you can relate with me. At first, it's a little bit hard to understand, okay? It's loaded thick with images from the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel. But as we unpack it, I think we see that a major theme of this passage is the promise of complete security. It's the promise of complete security. So we are made to want it, and amazingly, we are invited to have it. But we just tend to look in the wrong place places. So we're going to look here at this picture of security. Before we do, let's remember a little background. What's this book about? This book is meant to encourage and motivate Christians to trust in Jesus and live faithfully for him no matter the cost. And the motivator for that is that Jesus is king. He reigns now and he wins. And those who are his will enjoy him and his victory. He's worth it. And so the last several weeks, We've seen these three major events of history, right, that all Christians are anticipating. Number one, Jesus is going to come back. Are you ready? Come, Lord Jesus. He's going to come back literally and physically. Number two, everyone will stand before the throne of God to answer for how she or he has lived. That's number two. It's coming. And then number three, we enjoyed this idea last week. The earth will be made new. So gloriously New. So we've seen these three fundamental events happen in this book. We're waiting for them in this life. But here in the second part of chapter 1, John's going to give us another look at something. And this happens a lot in the book, doesn't it? We'll look at something once, and then we'll come back around and look at it again. And, and we're doing that here in this passage. And so we're taking another glance at a reality we've already seen. So what is it that we're looking at? And at first you might say, well, as I heard it read, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like the ultimate UFO, right? It's uh, coming down out of the sky. It's ginormous. Uh, it's a cube. It's covered with jewels, right? What is this thing? Strange. But you look deeper and you remember 
Hey, Revelation is full of symbol. You begin to unpack the symbolism, you realize this is a picture of the church. This is a picture of us. This is who we will be. And of course, not only us, but all who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what we see here is a picture of the church in its completeness. And so I, could, I, could, I would never have enough time to go through every Old Testament text and image that is just stuffed into this passage. So I'm going to try to show you just highlights, three highlights to this completeness. Number one, the church will be completely radiant in the glory of God. We're going to unpack that a little bit. Number two, the church will be completely secure in the presence of God. And number three, the church will be completely holy to her Lord. Completely radiant, completely secure, completely holy. So we're going to spend the majority of our time unpacking these images in this passage. And then I want to just consider a few ways, and there are many, but a few ways we could apply the reality of these things in our lives. But first of all, just I want to confirm this to you, that we're looking at the church in this passage Uh, We've said this a million times as we've gone through Revelation. What's the best way to read Revelation? Number one, you read it biblically, and number two, you read it symbolically. If you try to to read this in a wooden, literal way, it it won't make sense. It's like a science fiction novel, and here we'll be waiting for a large cube to, to come down covered with jewels. You know, maybe, and if I, maybe I'm wrong, I won't be disappointed. I'm sure it will be amazing. But I just think that's the wrong way to read it. And for, for all this imagery, I think one thing should be clear. Look at verse 9, chapter 21, verse 9. What does the angel say? Come, I will show you. Who's he going to show us? The bride, the wife of the lamb. If you've, if you've been here for very long, we know who that is. We know who that is. Who is the bride of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? Who is that? It's the church. So this is not a what is this coming down out of heaven. It's not a what. It's a who. Who is this? John told you, I will show you. Show you what? I will show you who this is. It's the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carries me away into the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me. And what does he show? The holy city. So we're doing what Revelation loves to do. Let's take all the metaphors there are and let's pack them together. So uh, one, one metaphor of Jesus, he's the lamb. We, we're going to look at that again. Uh, another image of the church, she's the bride. That's supposed to teach you something about who we are to Christ, who he is to be to us. The bride is the church. If the bride is the city, the city is the bride, and the bride is the church, what's the city? It's the church. We're not looking at a what. We're looking at a who. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. Why? How? As Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. We're the bride of Christ. See, the illustration of marriage shows us that covenant faithfulness of Jesus, the depths of his love for us, his commitment to us, the devotion we ought to have to him. So in this vision, the bride is the city. The bride's the church, the bride's the city. It's a picture of a community. 
Another thing I think that's important to see just in the sense of the text and how the text works is there's a contrast taking place. I don't expect you to remember all of this, but if you go and read this afternoon chapter 17, you read chapter 17 and chapter 21, you will see this incredible parallel between two different women. And, and of course, they're both, it's both full of symbolism, right? Uh, do you remember the symbol in chapter 17 of the, the prostitute of Babylon? Remember that? And, and so there was an angel there inviting John to see. There was a vantage point. In, in 17, it was the wilderness. There was this woman. She was beautiful, adorned, and she has certain kinds of relationships. There's a reason she's called a prostitute. But she symbolizes something. What does she symbolize? She symbolizes what you could call the city of man. Culture and community that humanity makes economic and cultural systems that kind of lure you away. Think about it. If the church is to be the bride of Christ, we're to be devoted to him, what's a prostitute do then? Lure you away, lure you into spiritual adultery. So these are human, human systems, economics, to the point that you love them and follow them more than Christ. So you get the city of man, if you will, in chapter 17. That's what man creates in its rebellion against God. But in chapter 21, same parallel. John uh, John is taken to a certain place. And this place is not the wilderness, it's a mountain. And and he sees a woman and, and she's adorned. And she represents the community of God's people and and. This, this first lady, she had a certain kind of relationships. This other lady, she has another kind of a relationship. Who is she? She's devoted to Jesus. It's the community of people devoted to Jesus. And so if the one city is the city rebellious humanity makes, the other city is, did you see where this city comes from? Where did it come from? Is, is this a city where, where all the really smart and righteous people got together and worked really hard and we built it? Is that where the city came from? Did you see where it came from? He carried me away to spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. God made the city with his sovereign grace. God built this city. And of course, it's not a city just in the sense of a structure. That's not what it is. It's not a what. It's a who? This is God's people who are brought near to him through Jesus Christ. And so we just need to start here. It's so wonderful to see that. I mean, we're talking about themes like the end of the world, the new world that's coming. And then, and then after we have this new earth, we see this new earth and all its glory. It's really just a setting for God to lavish his kindness on his people who love him. The point here at the end of history, the spotlight's on the church. And you see how beautiful we will be, gloriously complete. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Anybody have any frustrations with the church? Some people say, I can't go to church. I was hurt by the church. And I have compassion for that. But listen, I've been a pastor for 18 years. You think I've ever been hurt by the church? You think my family's ever been hurt by the church? The church has, has people in it. You know what people do? 
they sin. You know what sin does to one another? It hurts. And, and Revelation is not naive about this. You remember the seven letters to the church? Seven, which means complete, whole. So it's kind of a description in a way of, this, of the church in this age between Jesus' ascension and his return. Do you remember how many of the seven churches were perfectly healthy? It was just a couple. And the rest had flaws, and some of them had serious flaws. Revelation's honest about what it's like for Jesus to save sinners. Sometimes there are fake Christians and churches that are churches in name only. That's true. And sometimes there's real Christians who sometimes look fake. And some of us should say, amen, praise God. Has that ever been you? But Jesus knows and loves his church, and one day he will make her gloriously complete. That's what this passage is showing you. She is gloriously complete. Three ways she'll be complete. Number one, uh, verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. And then there's this phrase in verse 11, having the glory of God. So what is John telling you about the church? What will she have? She will have the glory of God. What does that mean? It's hard to unpack, isn't it? I think it's even hard for John to unpack. And we heard how difficult it was when, when our scripture was being read. There were 12 jewels, and I had heard of maybe two of them. Um, but, but here's the, look at the idea, verse 11. They're having the glory of God, and then it's, it's what? There's another word there. It's radiance. How do we describe, John must be thinking, this radiance? What's it mean to radiate? It's like this beauty emanating out. And so here's the best we can do. It's like a most rare jewel. People in the ancient world like jewels. They're still, they're still a thing today. Well, what's it about a jewel? What is it about a jewel? It's, it's rare. It's beautiful. You unpack the word glory throughout the Bible. I like to summarize it like this. Heavy beauty. It's certainly not cuteness, okay? But it's heavy. And so the Hebrew word signifies value and worth, a sobriety, a, a seriousness. But it's also gorgeous. And it draws you and you long for it. It might kill you, but but you want to be there and see it. It's just the glory. And did you see what will look like? There's only one jewel I'm going to talk about today. I hope you're not disappointed. Having the glory of God, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like, like what? Like a jasper. I don't know what that is, and I'm not overly concerned about it. Here's what I want you to see. Look at Revelation 4. Back in Revelation 4, we saw a vision of the throne room of God. Revelation 4, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of what? Jasper. So John is saying, I'm seeing somehow the glory of God. I'm melting. I'm in awe, and Jasper's what I can throw at you. It's, it's heavy beauty. And then 
several chapters later, he sees the church, and what does she look like? Jasper. Ha! How can this be? The point isn't Jasper itself. The point is he looks like Jasper. We look like Jasper. We are going to be radiant in the glory of God. We will be beautiful. Gosh, what the way we're meant to be. You know, you need to think about the word glory. It's one of those churchy words, right? I remember my family went to London, England once, and we went to this wax museum, okay? And I was little, and I was into the A-team. Anybody old enough to remember the A-team? Okay, thank you. All four of you, thank you. Okay, and there was a wax statue of uh, Mr. T in the, in the wax museum, and guess who I wanted my picture taken with? Okay, because if you remember, the three of you can remember Mr. T, he could throw the bad guy through the window, right? And so you get into the wax museum, and there's, it looks just like Mr. T, except he can't move. He's made of wax. He's not real. Church words feel like that sometimes. You hear, glory to God, right? And it kind of sounds religified. What does it mean? What does it mean? When you hear the word glory, your soul should, should be something like, oh. It, it, that's, that's the way it should feel. Oh. The heavy beauty of God, the awe-inspiring magnificence of God. Psalm 19.1, just, just a couple thoughts on this. The heavens declare the glory of God. Come on, haven't you seen something in creation that moves you? I, I like to hear how even atheist thinkers talk about creation, because before long they're like worshiping a little. They're amazed by the beauty, the, the design. It's, it's spiritual for them, even though we don't get spiritual. It, it gets that way, right? Because there's something in creation that just, it's, it's telling you about something. And if you've ever been awed by anything in creation, and there's a lot to awe you, what's it, what's it telling you about? You ain't seen nothing yet. The giver is more glorious than the gift. He himself is glorious. And, and when people know, when they get a taste of the glory of God, this is what they want. Psalm 27 gives this to you. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after. I mean, you see it on the screen, so you already know what it is. But if God was like, what's one thing you want? You know what you should ask for? Can I dwell in your house and gaze on your beauty? If you knew what was best for you, that's what you'd ask for. Can I be welcome in your house and gaze on your beauty and inquire in your temple? And there's this theme throughout the Bible that as we gaze on God's beauty and his glory, we become glorious. You become like what you worship. What you love most forms you. What you meditate on forms you. And when you're drawn to God and his glory, it forms you. Read 2 Corinthians 3. Read Psalm 63. And then here at the end, as the church is revealed, we see the process is complete. And we, so flawed as though we have been and as we are, so sinful as we have been and as we are, we radiate the glory of God. That ought to excite you. 
that ought to move you. That you'll be that, that you'll look like that. I mean, didn't Jesus say of his people, the righteous will shine like stars in the heavens? You ever wondered about that? When I see you one day radiating God's glory, if I saw the future you now, I'd, I'd, it would be too much. Because you'll be brought near and you'll be changed. And we all will be together. And it will be complete. So verses 18 to 21. Jewel, 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 jewel. And then there's 12 gates. And what are, the, what are the gates made of? Pearls. So again, something rare, something precious. And they're incredible pearls. Imagine a pearl so big, you can make a gate out of it. And then you're like, oh no, how big are the clams in heaven? Uh, you're reading it wrong again, right? <laughs> Symbolically, a pearl symbolizes incredible beautiful value and we make the gates out of that in this city because we'll, we'll radiate the glory of God did, did you notice as the text was read anybody notice how many times you heard the number 12 okay in this vision I counted this up if you include the reference to 144 cubits which somebody who's good at math help me with that 12 times 12, okay. So if you include that reference, I think that's about 12. You now have 12 references to 12, and one of the references is 12 times 12. That's a lot of 12. Numbers are highly symbolic in the book of Revelation, aren't they? And what does 12 then mean? 12 means something. If we don't pick up on 12, we don't get this passage. 12 means completeness. When we saw a vision of the church, we saw 144,000. That is not a literal number of any group of people. That is a symbolic number of the church. Somebody who's good with math, I think that's 12,000 times 12. It means they're all there. Remember you see the vision of them early in the book? 144,000, then you go through all the suffering and trial and terrors and everything else, and guess how many are there after that? 144,000. We didn't lose any because Jesus doesn't lose any of his people ever. It means completeness. And so this city had the 12 tribes of, of Israel. That's the complete people of the old covenant. And then it's also founded on the 12 apostles. Those represent the people of the new covenant. This is the complete people of God. And so then these walls, these walls represent the community. Friends, these are, I don't think these are actual walls. The walls represent the community, and the walls are covered with jewels. And the jewels represent God's glory. And how many kinds of jewels were there? Well, 12, of course. Of course. Because you will be completely radiant in the glory of God. So much so that the streets of the city are paved with gold. Did, ever, did that ever bother any of you? You're like, this is a little too opulent for me, you know? The streets with gold, I feel like I'm a prosperity gospel preacher, you know? That's really not the point, okay? If you want a material in the, in the ancient world that means heavy beauty, it also means holy. We'll look at that in a second. But if you want a material in the ancient world that's heavy beauty, what, what, what could it be? It's gold. And we're so radiant, we use gold to pave the streets! You don't pave the streets with something that's rare you can't ever find. Streets. You'd be radiant with the glory of God. 
radiant. And friends, this is not just our future, it's what God is doing in you right now. Except so many times you don't see it. You don't see it. So have you ever, I mean, we've all, we've all suffered, right? Some big time, some little, but everybody suffers. And, and sometimes we're, we're persecuted or, or mistreated or disliked or rejected for our faith. There's all sorts of pains, difficulties, trials. Have you, have you ever wanted to ask why when you're in those trials? Of course you have, right? Of course you have. And sometimes you get upset and angry with God because you don't see a why that makes sense to you. We want the why. It gives us security. Now, I, I am not going to say there isn't some mystery to suffering. And I am not the kind of pastor that's going to give you the every possible why. There's a lot of the whys I don't know. Okay? If I could know everything God could know, you're in trouble. Do you expect that you can know everything that God knows or can be as good as God is? But he does tell you why sometimes, and here's one reason, and look at it. 1 Peter 1, 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a while, if, if what? Well, that's an important word. Only if necessary. Now, I know you and God might disagree with that sometimes. But he says it's necessary. You've been grieved by various trials so that, oh, here's the why. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, that you would trust God through trials, so that the test you would, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than what? Than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the resurrection, or excuse me, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see this? This is part of your glory, and it will shine beautifully to have a testimony of faithfulness to Jesus through trial. God is making you beautiful, church. We'll, get, we'll be complete in the radiance of the glory of God. Take some security in that. Two, the church will be completely secure in the presence of God. Well, in verses 15 to 17, you start getting the walls measured. And this is an echo from the prophet Ezekiel. Just, to, you know, in the ancient world. Uh, in, t- in today's world, we don't care. Your city has a big wall, no problem. We can fly over that, right? We can send a bomb, you know, through space, walls, schmalls, big deal. But in the ancient world, your city was as secure as its, as its wall. That's the way they would read this. Good walls were good. Walls come down, we're toast. Here's an example of that since it's Father's Day. Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So you see, you see the way the ancient writer is thinking. The walls bring security. That's the illustration, and he's, he's putting it into practice for the fellas. If you have self-control, 
for the glory of God. You bring a certain kind of security for your own life and for, and for your community. If you have no self-control in your mouth, your actions, your deeds, your heart, your anger, if you're unhinged, the security's gone for yourself and for all of us. But these walls in this vision, more math, okay? It's hard text for me. 144 cubits thick. Supposedly, my study notes tell me a cubit's 18 inches. 18 times 144, I did this on a calculator. I hope I typed it in right. 2,592. Divide that by 12, 216. So according to my calculations, these walls are 216 feet thick. What are you supposed to get out of that? And again, this is not like, watch out. This is a huge wall falling. It's not a, it's thick. What's breaking down this wall? No, it's not coming down. If you are in the city behind these walls, you are totally secure. You have nothing to worry about. The security of the church, 12 times 12, untouchable, no danger, no threat. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? There will be a day when our community, all God's people, there's just no more threat. There's no more danger to watch out for. Total security. Every resource, every beauty. Now, you you could think, oh, well, what if you're stuck behind the walls and you don't have what you need inside the walls? That can happen sometimes, right? The army comes and surrounds the city and they can't get in, but neither can food, (laughs) Uh, Is that going to be a problem in this city? Of course not. We'll skip a little bit into chapter 22. Chapter 22, 1, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The trees were for the healing of the nations. So in the first part of chapter 22, the angel shows us what's inside the city. Now, again, I don't think it's a literal building. What's the city represent? It's a church. It's not a what, it's a who. And right there in the midst is the throne of God. But did you see that? Who's right in the midst of us? God. He's right there with us. Completely with us. And what's, what's coming from his throne? I mean, this might be a place where there's a throne and a river, and that's awesome, and I'd be happy with that, and I can't wait to go. But it's, don't you see a picture of a throne with a river? That's not really the point. It's full of the water of what? Life. Life. You and I think of life, and you can, you know, how long are you going to live? I don't know. And I don't know about you, I'm a little bit concerned about living like 30 years in a nursing home. But it gets at the idea where you could be alive but not really living. We know about that, don't we? You could be, you could be, in this life, you can be alive but not really living. That, that illustration plays on a lot, of, a lot of categories. Married but not really married, right? Uh, alive but not really, you, you can do that so easy in this life. That's not the kind of life this, this picture is talking about. This is the author of life, the one who is eternal, glorious, 
happy in himself, the creator of heaven and earth, the giver of all good things, the source of every good thing you have ever enjoyed. This is the one from whom that came, and he in this city is giving you his life. You'd be so alive all the way, in every way. Every need overwhelmingly fulfilled. It says in Ephesians that that God's goal for his people is to lavish his kindness upon them for ages and ages. And I just, I'm betting all my money on this. I don't think there's anybody that God tries to thrill that he can't thrill. I don't think anybody gets there and goes, as God is lavishing his kindness and giving his life, I don't think there's anybody who goes, "Eh." no way. No way you will have every satisfaction in his life. And he's in the middle. So so the walls are so thick, you're totally secure. You're in the city, and and in the middle of the city with you is God and his life. How else can John say you will have everything you need beyond your wildest dreams, all coming from God himself? This is how he said it. You'll be completely secure. And did you see what's growing up on each side of the river? The tree of life. If you've ever tried to read your Bible, right, this ought to back you up a little bit. This this is an important verse, okay? Sometimes, have you ever felt this way when you read the Bible? It's like this really disjointed puzzle, and you're not not quite sure how this is working. 66 books, all these authors, context, genres. What's going on? This seems different than that. You see something amazing here, okay? Okay. It's true. We know and believe this about the Bible. The Bible is written by human authors. Absolutely. It came from a real human being in a human context, two human people in a human context, using words and expectations and phrases of that historical context. Absolutely. It's a very, very human book. And it is inspired by God. It is infallible. It does not have the ability to err. And in practice, there are no errors. And it's one story. This is so important to see. It's one story. Where does the Bible start? In a garden. What's there? Rivers. And and what, what tree was there? The tree of life. Adam and Eve made in God's image to represent him on the earth, to be to be priests in that garden temple, to reign and rule, stewardship and dominion for his glory. What do they do? They buy the lie. God's not good. His words not true. Let's replace him. Let's replace him. We'll worship something else. And so they fall. They're kicked out of the garden and they lose access to the tree of life. We're broken. We're hurt. We're lost. The power of sin, the penalty of sin, the consequences of sin, we're broken. That's why this world is a mess. But you see the story. The the true Adam comes. The true Adam comes. He's not in a garden. He's in a wilderness, tempted by the same Satan. But he will not fall. He will not fall. And yet he's still cast out of the place, of the city. He's cast out of Jerusalem to a cross. Why? It's not for his sin. It's not for his sin. It's for my sin. It's for our sin. And God vindicates his work through resurrection. And Jesus ascends to heaven and he reigns now. He reigns now, especially in the hearts of his people. And he will return 
for his people. And where will he take us? It's the garden plus. Everything is restored to how it should be, except even better. We're brought into the tree to eat of the tree. Now, is there really a tree growing next to a river? I don't know. Maybe if there is, I'm sure it's awesome. But that's not really the point. The point is, it said something about leaves, didn't it? Fruit. How many kinds of fruit? You can guess. You don't even need to read it. You know at this point. How many, how many kinds of fruit? Of course. Of course. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. First of all, you see that, that God is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He will have people from every ethnicity. He will. That's why we love to want to plant churches in places where Jesus is not named, among peoples where Jesus is not named. It's a huge passion for Christ, for his apostles. People from every nation will be there. And when we drink of this water and eat of this fruit, here's the point, because God is in our midst, what will occur? Healing. Healing. Do you think God can heal you? Usually when we ask, we're like, I broke my ankle. Can God heal you? Well, of course he can. Praise God. Our bodies are healed. Or we're thinking of cancer. Could God heal? Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't, right? Read the Gospels. Jesus, Jesus healed every single sick person in an entire village sometimes. Amazing. And yet what happened to every single one of them after that? They got sick and died again. Because the ultimate healing is here. It's when we're restored, it's when we're glorified, and we're healed. And that's way more than just physical stuff too, isn't it? Does your heart need healing? Mine does. Sometimes I feel like I'm handicapped on the inside. I don't work right, I don't feel right. I got fears I shouldn't have. I got ugliness in me I shouldn't have. I got pain. Anybody have regret? And we probably should have more than we do. It will be healed. It will be healed. Oh, praise God. Praise God. We'll be totally secure because we are before God's face. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is the, is the ironic blessing. And Aaron was, God told him to say this to the people. Do you know what it is? Romans 6.24, the Lord bless you and keep you. So just think of blessing, that's giving you grace, that's helping you. Keeping you, that's protecting you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you. It's an attitude of attention, of care. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yes, may the Lord do this for you. And what do we see in Revelation 22, 4? Revelation 22.4, here it is. This is the best part. This is heaven right here. They will see his face. The prayer in the psalm gets answered. One thing I want, I want to see. And in heaven, you see. Jesus' prayer in John 17, Lord, bring them so they can see. And here's the answer. We get to see right here. And so secure you know, I said I want to be welcome to be secure. Do you see what's written on your forehead? Again, I don't think this is literal. Maybe it is. I don't think so. What's, what's written on your head? 
His name. What does it mean that God was write his name on your head? You now and forever, God is saying, are mine. You are mine. In fact, we don't even, we don't even need the sun. Think of what the sun gives. Light, life. We don't need it because God is there. What, what is that image for you? What does it show you? We're just radically secure in all of his goodness. There's no more night. You know, when, when John wrote his gospel, he likes to use the idea of night to signify evil, lostness, separation. And in this place, there's no more night. I don't think it means that the light never changes in the earth we live. Maybe it does, but I don't think that's the point. The point is evil, lostness, separation from God, it's over. It's over. God is our light. Our life will reign with him forever. How secure will you be, church, in the presence of God? So secure. Third thing to see, we'll be completely holy to the Lord. So in verses 22 to 27, it starts with, uh, you know, we're looking at a new Jerusalem, and then they say there won't be a temple. No temple. Do you, do you realize how strong of a statement it is to say there's a Jerusalem with no temple? The temple was what made Jerusalem Jerusalem. Because the only way you can meet and fellowship with a holy God is through a temple. That's why God made the temple, right? God is holy. Do you have a category for that in your mind? He is set apart in every way. He's morally pure and perfect. He loves his glory. It's right for him to do so. His righteous character is the standard. He hates every evil that deviates from that standard or denies his glory. That's in, in one way, that's wonderful and beautiful in what we worship about him, and it's also a terrible problem for us. A terrible problem because we're evil. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength every time, have you loved your neighbor as yourself every time? Are you submitted to God through his word and worship him alone the way he says, alone? You haven't, I haven't. So in the Old Covenant, the temple solved this problem, right? It's the presence of God that can be enjoyed by evil people. So we can come repenting, and the priests would offer sacrifices according to God's word to be, so that we could be forgiven and be welcome. There it is. But there's still a distance, right, when there was a temple? What was in the, what was in the back of that temple where nobody really gets to go? Anybody remember? It's the, it's the holy of holies. Nobody gets to go there. He's too holy. We're too sinful. And even the high priest could only go into the holy of holies once a year. And you remember what they had to do to him? They put bells on him and tie a rope to his ankle in case he dies in there because God's so holy and he's so sinful. And that's the high priest. You can't, how dare you go into the presence of a holy God? You can't do that. And now in this city, there's no temple. How can we be in the face of the holy God and not die? This is, the, this is my favorite part of the passage. You know, we saw 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. There's someone mentioned in this passage seven times. What's seven mean? A holistic, right? And, uh, and who is it mentioned seven times? Can you guess? It's the lamb. It's the lamb of God. Why is there no temple? Because Jesus 
is the lamb. Do you see how this works? Do you see how this works? Who's the, who's the high priest who totally and perfectly kept all God's law? It's Jesus. And what did Jesus the priest offer as the sacrifice for sins? Himself. This is why he's called the lamb. And for those who trust in him, we are given the gift of his righteousness, declared righteous, innocent, forgiven, and all our sins are taken care of because God placed them on him instead of us. Through faith in Christ, we are brought near. A little bit more math. Did you notice how the city is a cube? It's a ginormous cube. It's like 1,400 miles each way. It's like hitting satellites, right? It's so big. Well, I think it's symbolic. Uh, to my knowledge, there's only one other cube in the Bible. Do you know what it is? It's the Holy of Holies. We are the Holy of Holies in the sense that God is so richly with us. It's us now. The place where the high priest could only go once a year, it's us now every day all the time. Completely, holy. All these measurements that looks back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel's looking for a new temple where God's glory will fill it again. This is the answer. It's us. Forever and ever. Completely set apart for him. Look at 22.3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. Nothing accursed. Isn't it wonderful to know that you will no longer want to sin in any way? And that we will all worship him, devoted to him, like a bride, completely in love with Jesus all the time. You know, I think marriage is actually a great picture of holiness. My wife and I made vows, and I vowed to be set apart to her and her to me, that I would love and honor her in a way no one else will reach into that category in a unique way. And, and what's the picture of holiness here in this passage? It is marriage. It is, it is the groom, Jesus Christ, and the bride, the church. And one day we will be so holy to Jesus that we will love him with all our, our hearts and worship him with all we are all the time as he lavishes his love and his glory upon us. We'll be completely holy to the Lord. We will be the temple. If you love Jesus, that will excite you. So this is our security, church. This is our security. We'll be radiant with the glory of God. We'll be totally secure in the presence of God. We'll be completely holy to the Lord in every way. What do you do with that? Let me give just a few thoughts on what we do with this. Number one, the first and primary way to respond. This is... This is core and ultimate. Trust yourself to Jesus Christ. It is only his people who are getting here to this place. It is only the people who look to him to be right with God, to be forgiven of their sins, 
who want to follow him as Lord of their life. That's who comes here. Look at Revelation 127. Nothing, nothing unclean will ever enter this city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, that's a symbol. How do, you, how do you know you're his? How do you know your name is on that paper? How do you know his name is on your head? Trust Jesus. Repent of your sin and trust to Jesus Christ for your forgiveness to make you right with God, to be your Lord, your King, and your treasure. That's the first and most important application. Second one. Look at Matthew 6, 33. You know, in this context, Jesus is talking about money. He's talking about anxiety. In Matthew 6, 33, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What should you seek first? The kingdom. And why are you afraid to seek the kingdom first? Because it's a risk. It's a risk. Isn't it a risk to really love people? Something simple, a New Testament command is repeated. Show hospitality to one another. How about this one? Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Anybody afraid to forgive? To reconcile with those that have hurt you? How about to give, how about to give money and resources to God's work? Well, that's scary. It would lessen my security. Or, or how about to actually open a mouth and share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Christ? Or even just invite someone to church. You ever been scared of that? Or or what about standing up for truth in a Christ-like way when the scenario around you is denying that? That can be a scary thing. What could it be that would motivate you to take a risk for the kingdom? Here's the answer. If your security is here and now, and being faithful for Jesus will cause you to lose that, you won't take it. But if your security is where? Revelation 21 and 22. The eternal security that cannot be taken from you ever. If that's yours, it's a little more courage to take a risk now, isn't there? Take a risk. Number three. Fathers, what what does our Father in heaven provide for us? Security. We want to be faithful in providing security to our family, obviously, our community in a godly, faithful way, and of course, be the example of pointing them to the ultimate security. Third, this one kind of took me by surprise probably should have given more time to it. Did you, did you see who was in this community? It was all the nations. Did you see that? Um, what do you think? In your experience, do people who come from different places have different uh, starting points? Do they always agree together really well? It goes, it goes easy, right? If you, read the, if you read the New Testament, there's a huge, a huge difficulty with Jew and Gentile coming together. It's in a lot of letters coming from they're, they're different kind of people coming from different kind of expectations. And for them to have unity was so difficult. We, we know that same kind of theme in today's world, don't we? 
I challenge you to read Ephesians 2 into the chapter today. 2, 16, 6 to 17, you're going to get a description that's just like this chapter. God's building us into a temple founded on the apostles. And the whole point of the chapter is, hey, Jew, you trust and love Jesus? Gentile, you trust and love Jesus? The wall's broken down. He's made us one. He's made us one. Read Ephesians 4. Work for unity in Christ. Work for it. Value it. Because in this, in this chapter, we have a picture of what we will be. Is the church unified today? Depends on your point of view, right? That's another one of these already but not yet. We have it but not in fullness. Is there a way in which the church is unified today? Absolutely. I share deep and wonderful unity with so many Christian people. And thank God I've been able to go overseas a little bit. Wonderful unity. There's wonderful unity all over the place, the way Christians work together. It's understated. It doesn't make the papers. It exists. And if you want to make a lot of money, diss on the church. Sell your book, a million copies. It's easy. It's easy. We're, we're broken, right? We're, we're shattered. Sometimes we don't, we don't know what unity should be built on. We don't know what the most important truth is. Or we'll, di- we'll divide over a leaf falling on the tree, or we won't divide when we should. It's so difficult we don't have it. One day we will. And this passage says, because one day we will. Look at Jesus' prayer at the end of 17. Work for unity. What does he pray? I pray that they would be one as we are one. That's the fourth thing. Work for unity. Fifth. This will be my last one. Strive to be holy. Look at Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for, well, you, you tell me. Strive for what? Strive for peace with who? Are you sure? Everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's by faith alone, but the fruit of that is you want to be holy. If heaven is a picture of people utterly devoted to Jesus Christ, and if you want to go there, and if you think you're going to go there, and you're hoping you're going to go there, what should you be like now? Devoted to Jesus Christ. Holy in what you think, what you do, what you love. Those are five applications from this text. Trust yourself to Jesus. Take a risk for the kingdom. Fathers, provide security. Work for unity, church. Strive to be holy. But we do all of those things. Why? Because the church will be complete. Complete in the glory of God. Completely completely secure in the presence of God. And completely holy to our Lord. Isn't that a beautiful future? It's a beautiful future. You, if you have Christ you have the greatest security there ever could be. That's what's meant to fill your heart's longing for security. And because you have it, celebrate it by living for him. Let's pray, then we'll take up our offering, finish up with singing songs of praise to our Lord. Our Father, we thank you for these promises of your great love for us and how it will be eternal, massive, powerful, secure. And Lord, as we hear your word, we just pray now that you would apply your word to each one of us. 
Lord, if somebody here is not a Christian just thinking about this, I pray that they'd be filled with questions to ask. They'd want to talk about these things, pursue these things. Lord, uh, for, for those who are your people, just encourage us, stir us up to love you, to follow you, to trust you, to live for you because of the security you give us and will give us forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.